0: This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast.
1: We've certainly heard lots about uh, buying and selling on various online platforms and lots of people uh, do it all the time. Lots of people still fearful of it. Uh, very fascinating idea coming out of the Kingston Police Department. The Kingston Police Service have quietly began offering a safe space for residents to buy and sell and trade their items through classified ads. The items can range from small CDs to furniture. Uh, Is there a need for this? And do we need to set, because they always say when you meet with people, if you're, you know, doing any sort of transaction uh, in person to do it in, uh, you know, a safe zone. And of course, we only have to think of the Tim Bosma case. Uh, to uh, to think how this sort of service could be a benefit. Joining us now is Dave McCormick. He is the Executive Vice President of Business Development, Investigative Solutions Network. And he's on the line with us now. Hello, Dave. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. What is Investigative Solutions Network?
2: Well, investigative Solutions Network is a large, very comprehensive investigative company based in Pickering, Ontario, but we do business throughout Canada and the United States. And uh, virtually everything you can imagine, we've expanded a lot beyond what you would consider a normal investigative uh, company to be doing. We provide an awful lot of training to corporations. We do a lot of pre-employment screening. And uh, I'd encourage anybody with the opportunity to have a look at the website at uh, isninc.ca.
1: Online world, obviously, uh, your business is affected just like pretty much every other business is affected. It, it, it's a whole new world out there. Why is there a need, and what are your thoughts on what Kingston's doing?
2: Well, I think the need has emerged because more and more criminals are seeing the opportunity to set up and rob or even worse, kill people for whatever reason by engaging with them on the internet, sometimes under the guise of buying property from them or selling property to them, and then meeting them in a location where they can then perpetrate whatever crime they have planned. It's uh, becoming a little bit too increasingly opportunistic, and it gives them the opportunity to rob, steal, defraud, or whatever it is they may want to do.
1: So is this a good alternative?
2: I think it's a safe alternative, absolutely. I mean, there are some guidelines that everybody should follow if they've made a deal on the internet and they're going to meet somebody in person for the purpose of buying or selling property. They should safeguard themselves as much as possible. And uh, kudos to uh, the Kingston Police Service for providing an opportunity to meet in a safe place. Uh, Obviously, a police officer is not going to be standing there brokering the transaction or watching the transaction, but uh, my information from Kingston is that it's... uh, it's in a parking lot at a police station, a specified area, well lit and uh, under video surveillance at all time, and obviously there are police officers and members of the police service nearby.
1: Uh, we've been trying to get a hold of someone uh, from Kingston to talk about this, but obviously there must have been a need to create such a space.
2: I'm not aware of any specific incidents in Kingston, in the, Kingston that caused a need for it. I think it's proactive on the Kingston Police Service's part to provide that service to their community.
1: Uh, do you think that this will work?
2: Well, I think it will, absolutely. It creates a safer environment for those transactions to take place. It protects the buyer and the seller.
1: Should this be uh, um, a good, uh, I guess, procedure that most should take uh, advantage of in this area? Or even, um, you know, as far as doing any transactions, you should obviously be doing these uh, in a public place. Should people now start just making a, the local police station a point of, of reference and a point of, of doing the transaction?
2: Well, I would hesitate to say yes to just show up at the police service and start transacting whatever it is that you're selling. I mean, <laughs> if they were to walk in the front door of a police station carrying a couch or a fifty-five-inch screen TV and things like that, I think that the police officers and the members on scene might have something to say about that because it would be counterproductive and interrupting with the business of running the police station. But I think it is—it's uh, a good customer service that uh, Kingston is providing for them. I think other services will probably take a look at providing something similar. I know that most police services do provide a set of guidelines as to how to best protect yourself when dealing with these situations.
1: You talked about uh, online guidelines, give us some of those, give us some tips if people are considering doing
2: this. Well, I think some of the things that everybody needs to consider is that uh, you should never go alone. Make sure that you bring somebody along with you. Tell somebody where you're going and what you're going there for. Let them know what you're doing, what time you're going to be there, what time you're expected to be back home. Meeting in a public place that is well lit in a busy area during daylight hours, I think is crucial. And if you can, make sure you're going somewhere that has very good video coverage, video surveillance cameras in the area. I would never let a stranger into my home. I wouldn't go into a stranger's home for this purpose, Uh, Don't get into anybody's car with them to go and look at the product, whatever that may be. Make sure you have your cell phone with you. I would say don't wear, Scott, anything that you're not prepared to lose. So don't go wearing flashy jewelry. Don't take any more cash than you need to take to conduct your transaction. Don't bring your wallet full of credit cards. Don't bring those things that you could lose and be victimized very quickly before you even have a time to report them, where these bandits can then drain your account or run up your cards. Inspect the item before you pay for it. I mean, oftentimes, for example... Uh, laptops in a sealed box are sold without the person ever looking at them and when they get it home and pop it open it's full of newspapers that weigh about the same as a laptop would Mm. so don't be that type of a victim and i think something we've been told by our parents and grandparents for years and we tell our kids trust your instincts I mean, if it doesn't feel right it's not right and if you don't feel right and you're a little bit hinky about it walk away if the deal sounds too good to be true then it's too good to be true don't be a victim you don't need that item that badly that you're willing to lose at the worst-case scenario, your life over it.
1: Do you think these th- these sorts of sites will be used a lot? Any reports of, wh- of how busy this site has been in Kingston? Are people taking advantage of this? Do you know?
2: People are taking advantage of it, but my understanding is it's not that busy a site. Yeah. Do you think- what a great alternative. What a, what a good move by the Kingston Police Service, in my view.
1: Well, it's interesting, too, that uh, spokespeople for Kijiji have been encouraging uh, other people in other jurisdictions to come up with some sort of thing. I mean, you, doesn't, you don't have to necessarily do this at a, at a police station. I mean, this could be done in any public area, could it not?
2: It could, as long as you follow some of the guidelines that we've just touched on, and the guidelines that are put out by sites like Kijiji and Craigslist and police services across North America are more and more frequently putting these types of guidelines on websites as well.
1: Do you think there should be any extra laws uh, on the books for something like this? I mean, is there any way to police this anymore? I mean, it's pretty tough when, you know, two people out on their own are just conducting some sort of transaction.
2: No, I don't think any laws need to be put in place to, to govern how those transactions take place. I mean, we're going to always take advantage of technology, and, and uh, newer generations certainly latch on to technology a lot faster and use it more uh, quickly than, than some other generations do i don't know that it needs to be legislated i think we need to make sure that we're bringing our children up to understand the perils of this type of interaction and just to make sure that they're as properly and as well armed going to these situations as they possibly can be
1: do you think it's self-policed enough i mean you know pretty much people know who who they're dealing with in the sense that you know they do have some sort of uh a check on 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 these people's performance if they paid that sort of thing does the does the industry itself do enough to police this
2: I think the industry does. I think with the guidelines they, they put out and making sure that they're dealing with a secured website, uh, I think the industry does absolutely. I think where people t- sometimes fall down on themselves is when they, they get a little bit greedy and they think that they're going to be able to buy this tremendous item for such a low-cost cut cost price. I think that's when we need to kind of step back and say, wait a minute, does this make any sense? Is this a realistic price for what it is that I'm buying? Or why does this person want me to send them the item sight unseen? They're willing to buy my piece of jewelry without coming and seeing it, for example, and they're going to fax or transaction, email, somehow get the money to me. And um, obviously, when the money shows up, it's it's fraudulent. The check never clears. The check's on a stolen account. The account's closed, those types of things. So we need to step back and don't make ourselves a victim because there are enough predators out there looking to prey on people in this type of uh, an environment. Uh, But again, most people the deal in this are, are good, upstanding people who legitimately want to sell or buy their products. But anytime you have an enterprise like this, certainly the criminal element is going to find its way in.
1: Are there a lot of perpetrators? I mean, there's so many of these transactions that go on all the time, Dave. I mean, what, is it pretty much a safe, a safe environment to do business in?
2: I would say for the most part it is a safe environment to do business in, but it's hard to answer to answer your question because a lot of people when they are victimized in this fashion are embarrassed by it. Yeah. Much like any type of a fraud, they don't want to come forth and report. They don't want to realize or they don't want to have their friends realize that they made a mistake like that or their family because they feel embarrassed.
1: Yeah. Makes sense. Dave McCormick's been with his executive vice president of business development an Investigative Solutions Network, Inc., talking about Kingston Police Service uh, creating a safe space for residents to buy and sell and trade their items through various online classified ads. Dave, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated.
2: My pleasure, Scott. Have a great day. You're listening to the
0: Scott
1: Thompson
2: Show weekdays from noon to three on AM nine hundred CHML.
1: All right, you know we've certainly been hearing lots about telephones, uh, telephones, cell phones, and and how the price is different depending upon where you go in the world. Canada, of course, paying some of the highest data rates and and, and cell phone plan rates in the world. Many people will say because, or at least the telecom, big telecoms tell us that's because Canada's so big and it's so vast and there's not many people, you know, whereas compared to the United States, 10 times the population, more competition, the area is roughly the same, but, you know, there's so many more customers using the service between points A and point B. But how does that explain why you can get cheaper cell phone rates in places like Saskatchewan or Manitoba or, or the Prairie Provinces? if you're buying into that whole population distance thing, you would think they would be paying more compared to the density of, say, a southern Ontario. But no, what's happening is due to competition, I guess, they are the ones paying the cheaper rates. And now companies have started becoming middlemen. And basically what they're doing, from what I understand, is redirecting your account through another province in order to get you a cheaper rate. How is this going to last? Uh, does it have legs? Will this spawn? Future rate decreases. To talk more about all of this, Ian Lee is with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He is with us now. Hello, Ian. How are you today?
3: I'm doing just fine, Scott. Thanks. for. You are in Warsaw? I am in Warsaw, Poland. Uh, but I'm just uh, teaching in the Canadian MBA here, but I'm coming home Sunday morning, and uh, I'll be home Sunday night. It just shows the marvels of modern technology and digital technology, because this phone is in a hotel that has uh, updated its, uh, its telecom communi- telecommunications using the very latest digital technology, and it sounds like I'm just down the street from you.
1: Boy, does it ever. And we thank you very much uh, for taking time out of your busy day while you're there to do this. D- tell us about life there. What's it like there?
3: It's, uh, Poland is, um, it's, it's a fascinating, uh, and it is fascinating for Canadians, especially because the second largest Polish population in the world outside of Poland, lives in Canada,
4: hmm.
3: uh, mainly in the Toronto region, by the way, but out west as well. And, um, Poland, so there's a lot of, uh, uh, people going back and forth between Poland and Canada, and in Poland, uh, is seen as a very important country, uh, they key on what we're saying and what we're doing, and they take Canadian dollars here, which most countries in Europe don't, and, um... But to answer your question uh, directly, um, the IMF did a survey, a m- wonderful survey, about a year ago on the 25th anniversary of the collapse of the Berlin Wall, and they asked a very simple question: Out of all those former communist countries or Soviet socialist countries, whatever we want to call them, who is doing the best today? And they developed a good methodology using things like unemployment rate, average income, uh, GDP growth rate, etc. And they concluded that Poland is outperforming all the other countries including russia including ukraine including uh... uh you know uh, bulgaria and romania and so forth and the prosperity here and it's middle-class prosperity it's not you know there's a few billionaires and everybody else is suffering badly there's a vast middle-class here they have traffic jams like no tomorrow everyone owns a little car and there, there is middle-class prosperity everywhere. They're doing extremely well. Lots of middle-class goods out, all kinds of stores and restaurants and kiosks and, and so forth. So the country, by anyone's standard, is, is doing very, very well.
1: It's amazing. I think, it, it, it's amazing because all politicians seem to talk about here is the middle class, and bringing yeah. back that middle-class prosperity. What, yeah. are the, what are they doing differently, especially considering their history?
3: Well, I'll, it ties in, actually, as an, a case study, an example, right, into telecom and, and cell phones. They have gone down the road of, uh, cre- well, first off, they joined the European Union, which, of course, is a, essentially a NAFTA-type agreement, right? It's, a, mm-hmm. it's an association of free, free movement of goods and services. But they have sponsored competition wherever possible, so they have all kinds of cell phones here, cell phone companies, excuse me, providers. And, and so there are, there's far more, I think it's fair to say, in many industries, not everyone, but in many industries, there's far more competition. And as a consequence, each of that in my own class, I teach executive MBA. These are country managers. And there's people in the class from Italy, from, uh, uh, I mean, all over Europe. And there's all kinds of multinationals here investing in Poland, investing all kinds of money building plants here, and so forth. So uh, one of the answers is they've done lots of free trade agreements with uh, lots of different places, and they uh, encourage competition. They don't practice protectionism, something that Ontario, I mean, I wish Ontario would take some lessons from uh, Poland, because Poland's doing everything or just about everything right, whereas Ontario, you could say, is sort of the, no pun intended, the polar opposite of Poland.
0: Mm. And
3: uh, Poland's got it right, and Ontario, in many respects, does not. And uh, it comes down to, you know, intro to classical economics. You know, more competition drives down prices, creates more jobs, creates more wealth, and, and so forth. So uh, they and, and they also are next door to, but so are we, but they're next door to a very large country called Germany. And just as we're next door to the United States, mm-hmm. you know, one, the United States is the largest economy in the world. Germany is the fourth largest economy in the world. Uh, and that does help, that there be no mistake about that. But they are encouraging competition which to me is the answer for, for example, cell phone prices and uh, high cell phone prices in Canada. We need more cell phone companies in Canada competing to drive down those prices, as they have done in Poland, where they're paying uh, lower cell phone prices
4: than we are.
1: How bizarre is this, though, Ian, that you know, all, all, all the world seems to be talking about lately is protectionism, and here's Warsaw, former communist, yes. Warsaw, Poland, former communist country. They seem to be teaching us all a lesson in capitalism.
3: They do, Scott. And the 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 crazy thing, and I talk about this in my classes at Carleton and Ottawa as well as here, with all this talk about protectionism, you know. And I'm talking Donald Trump and and not just Donald Trump, you know, the Canadian Labour Congress in Canada and Jerry Diaz at the uh, at, at the Unifor and and uh, for that matter, the Democratic candidate running against Hillary Clinton, um, uh, you know, all of them were going on and on about the wonders and joys of protectionism. But my point that I wanted to make, Scott, is the data simply does not support what they're saying. Yeah. The data flatly contradicts it. The latest data came out from the U.S. Census Bureau and the U.S. Bureau of Economic Analysis showing incomes are up sharply in the United States for all income classes. And there's Donald Trump and, and Sanders running around saying, that, that, you know, America's in decline, their economy is collapsing. That's simply not true. The data shows the opposite. Likewise, Canada can
1: then, how do we get that money to the middle class? And if business is doing better, why isn't Joe and Jane America feeling it?
3: Well, they are. They are. The problem is now, I, and, and I, that's an excellent question. I don't want your listeners to think I'm ducking it. Here's the answer the majority of Americans are prospering and prospering very well. Can we say the same Notice- about Canadians? This is one sec. Notice okay. I did not say all Americans. Yeah. There is a minority of Americans, maybe 30%, which is significant. That's a third. Two-thirds are doing very well, thank you very much. One-third are not. And they are the people in the old-line industries, the manufacturing industries, people that worked on the production line. Mm-hmm. They, they're overwhelmingly, and they've been studied to death, but they're overwhelmingly white, blue-collar, working-class, no no. high, sc- uh, no, um, uh, They didn't go to university, they didn't go to college, like Sheridan College. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have a trade. And they're not doing well at all. And they're really, really angry, and they're really upset, and they're supporting Donald Trump. So people are extrapolating, saying, well, all Americans are doing badly. No, the majority of Americans are doing very well. <laughs> it's a minority of Americans that are not doing well, but they're very loud and very vocal about it. Can
1: we say the same about Canada?
3: Yes, yes. Although I do want to make a distinction. The, um, uh, and the, the critical distinction, uh, and you know that I'm a, a fiscal conservative, um, uh, not a partisan, but a fiscal conservative, but I do acknowledge, fully acknowledge that we redistribute wealth to a much greater degree than the Americans do through our social programs, through unemployment insurance, old age pensions, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. And so our uh, people, are have-nots, let's put it that way, the people in the bottom two quintile groups, which is the bottom two classes, are much better off, relatively speaking, than people in the bottom two classes in the States, where it's pretty grim for Mm. them. So we are not doing – yes, the incomes have stagnated for the bottom two uh, groups, but they're not doing anywhere near as badly as the United States because we redistribute wealth from everything from, you know, the HST reimbursement for people, low-income people, and, you know, we top up old-age pensions with a guaranteed income supplement for low-income people, and, and we have a much more generous unemployment insurance system. So when you actually look at the two uh, countries and compare them, our people in the, in the bottom uh, groups are, are relatively better off Right. than the States. It's, my, my serious statement, i said to Europeans every year, and I've been teaching here every year for 25 years. If you're very affluent or very upper-middle class, you can have a wonderful life in the United States. But God help you if you're poor in the United States, yeah. because it's very tough. Whereas in Canada, our poor, I'm not trying to say that their streets are paved with gold for, no. for low-income people, but they have a much better life in Canada than they do in the United States. And I travel to the States 10 to 15 times a year, and I see it.
1: We always talk, getting back to cell phone prices, we always heard the excuse or the reason that, that uh, people in the United States had cheaper cell phone rates than here. Simply uh, more people spread out over the same area, obviously 10 times the population of Canada. Yep. Uh, that's why they have lower rates. How do we explain lower rates in, pra- in prairie provinces then?
3: More competition. Um, and, and while I normally do agree with that, that there are economies of scale, uh, and you're you're invoking the, the economies of scale argument, that mm-hmm. as you scale up and you produce more widgets, the cost of each widget gets cheaper per widget to, to sell, whether it's a car or a cell phone. And I, I'm, I'm not trying to tell you that I don't believe in economies of scale. They exist, especially where you're making physical things. And I'm talking cars, for example, on a production line, where there's lots of steel and metal and that sort of thing. However... The economics of digital, and I won't go into the weeds on this, I promise, Scott, but I'm telling you this has been studied uh, enormously by economists, and the economists of digital industries are very different because here is the single most important thing to understand about digital industries, and I'm talking digital newspapers, digital radio stations, uh, um, and in this instance a cell phone that's providing a digital service called a cell phone signal. The marginal cost, that means the cost to produce one additional service or one additional widget is zero in the digital world Hmm. because the marginal cost the marginal just means the additional cost well what's the cost to send one more email message over the network once you've paid for the network the incremental cost is zero the incremental cost of servicing one more cell phone call is zero it's the peculiar economics of digital industries digital businesses digital products the cost is up front in building the network. Once you've built the network of cell phone towers, etc., the cost of, 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 of sending one more text message, the cost of sending one more cell phone, signal, message, phone call, or the cost of one more email is zero. So that means you can bring those costs down um, uh, until you basically hit your break-even point. And they're miles above because of the lack of competition in Canada. Bell, Rogers, and TELUS are miles above their break-even. To put that into plain English, they have lots of room to cut their prices. Answer why do, a question, why don't they cut their prices? Because they don't have to, because they don't face enough rigorous competition. How do we, have more, competi-
1: How do we have more competition in the prairie provinces, though, than we do in southern Ontario?
3: I, I'd have to look into why. I mean, if you're, at, you're now asking a historical question... I don't know the answer why there is. We do know there is. I don't know why it happened, whether it was just by a historical accident. Uh, I don't know the but answer. But aren't we all playing all into
1: the same CRTC rules here?
3: We are. We are. But remember, once you have your license, uh, you can go anywhere you want uh, mm-hmm. pretty well. And uh, so, again, I, mean, I, shouldn't, I want to be careful and not have somebody writing me who's a techni, technology engineer. I mean, you have a license for a very broad area. And then you can go in. In this instance, let's be clear what's going on so everybody understands why some people are uh, in the so-called black market. First off, what they're doing is not illegal. It it may be against the company policy of Bell and Rogers, but it's not against the law what's happening. So people are providing in Ontario an address from a western province where the prices are cheaper, and then they're basically getting a subscription, a cell phone subscription from from, uh, Saskatchewan as if they live there. Yeah. And they're providing uh, an address from Manitoba or Saskatchewan and getting the Manitoba or Saskatchewan price. That's all that's happening. They're just providing a different address uh, to the cell phone company. And that enables them to get a, a Manitoba cell phone number with an area code from Manitoba or Saskatchewan. And then they get the much lower price. And uh, what that suggests to me is that Bell, Rogers, and Tellus could be charging lower prices across Canada hmm. and still making money.
1: How would this cancel? It's, they say if you do this, it will cancel your initial cell phone deal. We hear the penalties involved in that from when you do that are huge. Why is this so easy?
3: I'm. I, I don't know the because I have not done this myself. To be quite frank, I haven't done it and explored it. I'm. I'm assuming this is a person who's at the end of a contract who's not on a contract. Right. I mean, if they were on a contract, you're quite right. I mean, I know that when I canceled a contract once, I was hit with. I can't remember. It's 150 or 200 dollars, mm-hmm. and if they have your Visa card, which they almost inevitably do, they can just uh, mm-hmm. you know uh, debit your Visa and, and collect it back from you. So I'm assuming these are people. Remember, people who are using uh, services like Fido and um, um, and I think it's called Codo, they're usually not on a contract anyway.
1: Yeah, that's true. Okay. Yeah.
3: So uh, they're not getting hit by the cost of a phone that they got below market from Bell in exchange for signing a two-year contract. And remember, the contracts are because the CRTC ended three-year contracts. Uh, people are getting out of their contracts sooner. And uh, my, I think the takeaway from this story is let's hope that this puts real pressure on the big three in Canada to reduce their prices to the Saskatchewan-Manitoba prices.
1: What does I the mean, CRTC think of all of this?
3: Well, the CRTC doesn't regulate prices as such. They, um, but they, I don't it, think
1: this would have been part of their plan, was it?
3: No, I don't think it was. I don't think it was. What it shows, and I'm not changing uh, the topic at all, but I wrote an op-ed about two years ago and it was really about where is the CRTC going now that we're in the world of dig- pure digital or are moving towards pure digital. And what I mean by that, radio stations are increasingly going on and becoming an address on the Internet mm-hmm. as opposed to being over the air. Mm-hmm. Likewise, television stations, BB33, BBC3, no longer is over the air. It's, a, it's an address on the Internet. Well, what's my point? You can re- CRTC can regulate radio and television when they're over the air because the Supreme Court ruled years ago that airwaves are public property. That was a famous, famous ruling of the Supreme Court of Canada and the U.S. Supreme Court, by the way, and that gave the right to the federal government to regulate those that your industry. What happens when your industry migrates to the internet? The CRTC will have no legal authority. And that's exactly what happened last year when Netflix came up to the CRTC hearings and politely told the CRTC Mm. to take a hike. (laughs) They said, we don't broadcast over the air. Why are you even trying to threaten us? Because you can't do anything to us. We exist in the ether world, in the the, the internet world. And so my point is, as more radio stations and and, uh, TV stations migrate from airwaves to internet addresses, the CRTC is going to lose it's decreasing authority already, it's going to lose that authority to regulate you at all because they cannot regulate you if you're not using right. the airwaves.
4: Right now you are,
3: but in the near future many people think that most radio stations and TV stations yeah. will no longer use radio waves. It'll be VOIP to use the technical yeah. jargon and the the takeaway story is CRTC cannot regulate the Netflix – I said Netscape. I meant to say Netflix uh, – the Netflix of the world and other uh, Internet uh, providers. They, just they have no control uh, over these uh, companies that are on the Internet. So it's going to be – we're entering into a brave new world where the CRTC and the regulatory authority is going to lose its authority. Uh, to regulate uh, these uh, companies in terms of content and that sort of thing.
1: Every so often, the government releases more bandwidth, or 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 tries to break up the the monopolies, the big three, by allowing the smaller ones to come on board, and then they just eventually get 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 eaten up. Is there is there any way to create a scenario? Uh, similar to the, that there is in the United States where there is lots of choice without putting some sort of regulation on this? Because clearly the free market, as soon as they're available, the small ones start, and then after a while they get scooped up again by the biggies.
3: Scott, you've asked, uh, I think, the single most important question uh, about um, uh, telecom in Canada. And I'm skeptical. Um, uh, not because it can't be done. It can be done. If not, you know, it's not impossible at all to let in more firms. Let me just sidetrack for a moment. This is one of the industries that are protected under law. People may not realize this. We have a few industries protected that prohibit foreign carriers from coming in. One is airlines. And uh, I'm not saying they can't fly into Toronto and fly back out, but they can't fly across Canada picking up customers. Foreign airlines cannot. Foreign telecom companies cannot come into Canada. It's prohibited by law. We could simply a parliament could be, uh, uh, abolish that law just say it's no longer in effect we've uh, rescinded it however the where the three the big 3 have us is that they are very large employers of people and they also represent very large investments in quite a few pension plans across canada full disclosure my own pension plan at carlton i believe is invested in them and so the re- reality is because they're so big and they're so important to so many people to pension plans and to employment that no government dares to rescind the law that basically creates protectionism for the big three. So, therefore, government, Harper government did it, and before that, sort of the Khrushchev government, as a sort of a second-best solution. They said, well, what we'll try to do is bring more bandwidth into Canada, and we'll try and regulate it that way and make the big three open up their their digital networks to the small guys, and we'll try and produce introduce incremental competition it's not a perfect solution it's not a good fix but it's better than nothing and the real fix is to let in all the major telcos but Bell has warned very publicly so is rogers you will cause enormous damage and there'll be massive layoffs and i think that they have intimidated all the politicians of all the political parties that they won't do that so what we're back to is trying to encourage a few startups to come in and ensure that they get bandwidth and the right to use Bell's network for a fee and Rogers and so forth. And so all we can do is hope that'll kick in. And what were you and I are talking about? These kind of um, emerging threats to the big three telecom companies, whereby some clever entrepreneur has figured out that he can get you a cheaper cell cell phone contract through Saskatchewan or Manitoba, through a flick of the switch, by just changing your uh, dot, your address, and so there's things like this that are going to drive competition further. D- I think as they, it's just going to take longer in Canada. Yeah, they're going to come down more slowly, but I think it is happening. And of course, and the speed uh, and the rate uh, and the, and the size of the network is going up, so the quality of the service is increasing. It's just our prices, our fees will not come down as quickly as they are coming down in the United
1: States. Ian Lee has been with us, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University, speaking to us from Warsaw, Poland, where he is teaching. Ian, thank you very much for the time. Much appreciated. My pleasure, Scott. Thank you. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Now, of course, uh, he's wearing a different hat and the subject that we're uh, we're talking about today that, uh, of course, warrants a phone call to this gentleman is real estate associations in Ontario are urging the province not to impose a foreign buyers tax. What are the implications of opposing a tax like this? We have seen this in Vancouver and of course what's what's happening in Vancouver, I think during the height at one time, one third of all real estate transactions, I believe it was, were from outside the country. So they've imposed a tax on foreign investment, on housing in that city. And as a result, we've seen the, the amount of, of purchases from uh, overseas go down. Now, obviously, what that seems to do is push it on to other jurisdictions. People in Toronto are wondering if the same thing should be done there because a lot of speculators that were in Vancouver are now moving on to Toronto. To talk more about this, Tim Hudak, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association, and he is with us now. Hello, Tim. How are you?
0: Scott, I'm be back on the Scott Thompson show. Are you kidding me?
1: <laughs>
0: I thought you would have forgotten all of that.
1: So what is life like for you on the other side now?
0: Well, to be accurate, I currently have no hat on. So I stepped out from politics on Friday. I've got a month to just sort of back, pack up my boxes and, you know, hand in my BlackBerry and all that stuff. I don't start the Real Estate Association till the uh, middle of October. Oh. But I, I wanted to talk about this because, like, one of the reasons why I was really excited to join the Ontario Real Estate Association was because of homeownership. Like, it's just always been an issue that's driven me, making sure that buying that first home when you graduate from school, you get married, whatever, that you can actually afford it. That's one of the reasons I wanted to go and work there.
1: So what talk about this scenario, because it seems that this tax would be a smart idea because obviously what's happening in Vancouver is it's pricing people from Vancouver right out of the market due to outside influence. So why is this a bad thing?
0: Well, I think one lesson I've learned is um, somebody I always admired in politics, Hazel McCallion, said do your homework. So I think we've got to make sure we've got the data. To what extent is this an issue in Toronto? Is it an issue in Hamilton? Are there some dirty tricks that are happening that we should be aware of and put a stop to? But I think a smart thing always in public policy is taxes can be big weapons. They can cause enormous changes. Sometimes government then gets addicted to money and it expands into other areas of homeownership, too. So... Look before you leak, Make sure you've got the evidence of what truly is happening. And in the meantime, what I want to do, Scott, as an incoming CEO, is put some new ideas on the table that will make home ownership more affordable for Canadians. People in Ontario, for example, there is a tax benefit for first-time homebuyers that's not been touched in a long time. What if you expanded that to make that first home more affordable?
1: So that all sounds good, Tim, but what's the problem with taxing foreign, foreign buyers who seem to be manipulating the market? I mean, you're talking about how the tax, if you impose a tax, and, and you know, I'm not big on taxes. I'm with you on that one. But, you know, uh, it seems that if we don't do that, that we're losing our, we're, we're losing our market to outside sources. I mean, and when you're talking about the, the numbers in Vancouver, I mean, it's not, it's not a small amount.
0: No, look, the point is there's nothing wrong with it if it's true. So, actually, let's get the data. To what extent is that driving up uh, prices? Are there uh, tricks that are happening in the real estate market that, you know, government should act upon? But, first of all, you got to make sure you've got the data. So, D.C. taxes put in place uh, impacted, I think, for August. We've got one month of uh, data so far. But you and I know, Scott, that real estate prices in, in Hamilton and Toronto and Niagara... They've been going up for some time. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of reasons behind this. So get the data on the foreign buyers list. Absolutely. Actually, the Toronto Real Estate Board is doing that right now as we speak. There's a federal-provincial panel. But let's think of this, too, there's a lot of restrictions on supply, and that's what's been driving up the prices these last number of years. There's been a lot of new regulations. The Green Act places to grow. If you restrict supply, that means fewer houses in the market, and that's it has been going up for some time in the last number of years.
1: So, obviously, I can see if you apply a tax in a certain jurisdiction how it may affect others in other jurisdictions. What if they did something right the way across the board? How would that affect from east to west?
0: Like if there was a national yeah. uh, tax, okay? Yeah, like, I, you, you know, uh, you mentioned my uh, previous role in politics and I squared off with the Premier and all that kind of... I think he used a good wrestling analogy. We're in the ring together. Um, so i got to say this. like I think, actually, that uh, that the Premier... And the federal government has taken the right approach on this. They've got a panel to say, okay, let's actually get the data. What is the cause of driving up these prices? And then my job at Area, the Real Estate Association, is okay, here's some ideas to put on the table that are going to help that young graduate from McMaster actually buy a house or that young family to get out of mom and dad's basement and get a place of their own. So that's what I'm going to bring to the table. And I think that they're being smart and saying, okay, let's actually get the data on what has truly happened.
1: That certainly makes sense, but there would, th- there would be those out there, Tim, that would say that this is just the, the real estate association, it's just greedy realers, realtors, and, and, and they don't want you to touch their market. They want it to be left a free market system.
0: Yeah, and that bugs me, right? Because I actually talked to realtors that, that get pissed off if they've got somebody who's a young couple that want to get a house that they can actually afford and they can move into, and if there are tricks happening, they are keep out of the marketplace. I mean, that's one of the reasons that BC had to bring in some new rules around some of the speculative things that were happening. So realtors actually want to make sure people get connected with that first home. That's what it's all about. So let's make sure we make the right decisions. And I think there are things we can do right here and now, Scott, that are actually on the table. Look, there's a tax credit for first-time home buyers that was brought in the 1990s. Real estate prices have gone through the roof since the 1990s. So let's expand that credit out of the gate and help people afford that first home.
1: What about, uh, you talked about tricks and, and speculation. What exactly is happening? What is happening in Vancouver over and above what is uh, what should be happening in that marketplace? Because people are sort of looking to that as the example.
0: Yeah, I, I think that there were a number of sort of shell companies uh, set up and they had to act. Look, I, I go over there to the Real Estate Association in, uh, in mid-October, so I'll get more info. I'm just sort of telling what I've read from media reports setting up on, on this issue. So that's what I worry about too. I mean, a a tax can be a simple instrument, and if there are foreign speculators, they can always try to find a way to weasel around it. I just believe, after having spent 21 years in uh, in public life, I've I've had my ups and my downs. But you should always make decisions, particularly when it comes to economic policy, based on what the facts are. Uh, We'll get that info between us, between the government, the Toronto Real Estate Board. But the driving thing that I want to see is when I head up the Real Estate Association as CEO. Is making sure that that dream of home ownership is actually within grasp of Ontarians, because you and I know housing prices are are getting more and more expensive, and average folks can't afford new homes anymore.
1: Tim Hudak is with us uh, between gigs at this point, but of course, on his way uh, to be the CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. So, waiting for data is is when are we going to know more on this? Do you think?
0: Um, Toronto Real Estate Board's in the field now, so I think in the next couple months they'll have that data back. I know the federal provincial working panels at work. Um, so I wish I could give you the exact date, Scott. I don't have that at my fingertips quite yet, but I'd expect in the next couple of months we're going to have more data on what is actually happening uh, in the Toronto marketplace and hopefully some more information on what's happening in the GTA broadly.
1: All right, I'm got to go back to your personal life, if you don't mind. So what was it like leaving uh, your last day in the ledge? We heard the clips. It was pretty funny, your last speech, some of your points that you made. What was it like there, standing up and doing that?
0: It's bittersweet, eh? Like, you think, holy smokes. Um, 21 years have flown by. Uh, I look at pictures of me, and you know, I say, "My God, what the hell happened to me?" I'm about 15 pounds heavier, less hair, and of, you know. <laughs>
1: hey, we uh, all are. Why should we all are? Why should you be any different?
0: <laughs> but I, um, I'm proud of the service. Like, even even if people didn't agree with what you know Hudak stood for, I, I think you know I was clear on the issues. I was honest with the solutions. I was bold and courageous. I, I quoted my speech Theodore Roosevelt, who's one of my favorite presidents, who said it. It's better to dare mighty things to actually have been in the arena, even if you get your you know, your nose bloody and you're covered in dust and to stand on the sidelines and know neither victory nor defeat. So I'm proud of the service. I'm gonna miss it. I'm gonna miss the actual, I'm gonna miss the people. But Scott, I never wanted to be a lifer and I'm really excited about the new York career ahead of me.
1: Yeah, good for you. Uh, so that being said, is it difficult to sit on the, on, the, on the sidelines, especially when you just look at the last week that was, where it, whether it's petitions for electricity or, you know, uh, the minister who said on this show, the more we raise rates, the more you save. I mean, boy, oh, boy, things are going to get pretty ripe in the next year or two. <laughs>
0: yeah, like there's no doubt you miss the action, right? You, you miss yeah. the adrenaline rush and being there. I mean, people that usually get in politics aren't wilting violets. So you've got strong views on the issues wherever you are, and you want to fight for them. But uh, I think there's an art to this. Um, you know, like sports uh, in politics, you got to find the right time uh, to leave the stage. You, you've had your impact, but there comes a time to hang up your skates. And I didn't want to be that guy, Scott, that was hanging around for life, that had maybe lost his edge uh, down the road. I wanted to walk out when I was in the prime.
1: Tim Hudak is with us, CEO of the Ontario Real Estate Association. Tim, I'm sure we'll talk again. Good luck with your future endeavors.
0: Yeah, thanks, Scott. Really appreciate me back, and hopefully we'll chat more about this when I've got some more numbers to show you.
1: Sounds good. Thank you very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHL. The Real Estate Association in Ontario urging the province not to impose a foreign buyer's tax. Uh, What are the implications of a tax like this? Of course, as I mentioned earlier, we had Tim Hudak on earlier. Uh, This is all stemming from what is happening in Vancouver and slowly moving across the country, I guess. And in which uh, I think at one point last year, a third of all purchases, home purchases in Vancouver were from outside of Canada. They were offshore uh, purchases, which, of course, has in uh, increasing the market and in, 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 in putting prices of homes out of reach for people who live in Vancouver. Uh, they have implemented this tax and foreign investment immediately has slowed down. What people are worried about is then it jumps to other cities, it jumps to other jurisdictions, comes to southern Ontario, that sort of thing. Uh, that being said, it, it has seemed to have slowed down the foreign investment in Vancouver. To talk about this from a local angle, Conrad Zirini is with us, remate of uh, Remax agent, and he is with us now. Hello, Conrad. How are you today? Hi, Scott. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking the time to join us. Uh, Vancouver, obviously, an extremely unique market, uh, surrounded by ocean on one side and mountains on the other. There's only so much space. Uh, that being said, we are certainly seeing. Uh, prices of homes in Hamilton and this area take off, uh, while other areas around us, I guess, have been doing this for years. Finally, Hamilton is, is starting to get traction. Any chance that we could be worried about something like this happening here?
4: In terms of foreign ownership? Yes. Like, uh, or, yeah, I well, we're we're you know we're, the, the story is very simple: the spillover from the GTA uh, into into Hamilton and value-conscious consumers coming to Hamilton. Um, Absolutely, we see a lot of immigrants coming to Hamilton. 3,000 immigrants come to Hamilton every year, um, and a lot to to, to Toronto as well. Um, people are looking for value. Yeah, we, we do see a, an uptick in foreign uh, purchasing here, but I don't think it's at the proportions that we've seen. Uh, Vancouver's always had that situation uh, for decades. Like you said, with their proximity to Asia, uh, they have a large Asian community that um, is attracted to... That lifestyle that is there, and uh, the weather, and everything. So a lot of that has to has has play in it as well.
1: So, what are your feelings on this tax? Well, I, I think you know, any tax is a regressive tax. Uh, any of
4: these investors, um, by the way they they they're looking for a couple things. They're, there's a three three legged stool when they look at investing. They're looking at currency fluctuation, uh, currency increases. That's that's one thing they're mindful of. They're looking for stability, and, and the Canadian market is 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 quite stable. Uh, and they're and they're looking for capital appreciation, which they've um, found in major centers like Toronto and and Vancouver. So it's got the perfect storm. They're just going to try to recover this money when they go to sell. I don't believe that they're going to take a loss on uh, on this tax at all. Now, if you look at the raw numbers today, uh, Vancouver, the the one million dollar purchases in Vancouver um, in August were down fifty one percent. And oddly enough, in in Toronto, they were up fifty five percent. So hmm. it seems to be that we've kind of shifted from from one market to the the other. But I don't think foreign buyers operate that quickly. I just think that um, uh, I'm very familiar with the Vancouver market and 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 the, the the media and and how it's portrayed. Uh, a lot of what what goes on there is uh, is react is reactionary. I think to to what's happened in the marketplace. I don't think we're seeing. Uh, the foreign ownership um, like drying up that, that significantly.
1: Do you think um, we will see a tax like this in Ontario? Well, you know what? If they're going to look at these raw numbers uh, like we've seen
4: in Vancouver, uh, and then Vancouver's um, price increase only went up by about uh, 0.3% from July to August, um, yeah, they're they're going to probably look at these numbers and say, hey, this is a great way to um, to slow down those numbers. Uh, but we're seeing, if we're looking at foreign buyers in, in let's say, in the... Uh, in our market here in Ontario, a lot of them are looking at uh, investment properties, uh, plazas, that type of thing. Uh, where there's negative right. interest rates, let's say, like in Germany, they're they're buying that type of you know that type of product, income-producing product, because they're dealing with negative interest rates there. So they'll if they get a two or three percent return on their investment in uh, Hamilton or Toronto or, or you know in, in southern Ontario, they're they're very happy with it, with those kind of numbers. Uh, the other thing is land. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of land acquisitions by Chinese, and, and a lot of farmland is being uh, being acquired as well, and uh, pushing prices up um, in land.
1: Conrad yeah. Zarini's been with us, local REMAX agent, talking about the foreign tax uh, put on homes in Vancouver, and they're talking about it in Ontario. Conrad, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to three on
3: AM 900 CHML.